Open Globe Talk is a podcast series for aspiring ophthalmologists and trainees interested in obtaining education in global ophthalmology. Be part of this unique setup as we interview ophthalmologists around the globe virtually and get to create equity in service, innovation, and medical education. Welcome back, everyone, to Open Globe Talk. And in this episode, I have the incredible opportunity and pleasure of speaking with Dr. Joff Tabin, who is not only a visionary, but also someone who reminds us of the importance of enthusiasm and passion for global health. He needs no introduction, but as you all know, he is the co-founder and chairman of the Himalayan Cataract Project, which was co-founded with Dr. Sendik Ruit in 1995. He's also the professor of ophthalmology and global medicine at Stanford University. On the side, he is also the first person in the world to reach the tallest peaks on each of the seven continents and was part of the team that invented bungee jumping. He completed his undergraduate from Yale University, did an MA in philosophy at Oxford University on a Marshall scholarship, went on to Harvard Medical School, and then did his ophthalmology residency at Brown University before he completed a fellowship in corneal surgery in Melbourne, Australia. And without further ado, I just want to welcome Dr. Jop Tabin. Uh, and this is an extreme pleasure for us uh, hosting you today. Well, thanks, Rizal. It's nice to be here with you. So to begin off, as an avid mountain rock climber, how did you gravitate towards ophthalmology? And specifically, how do you think ophthalmology uniquely positions it to address global health equity? Um, you know, the second part is a little bit more difficult. My personal journey, as you mentioned, I, I was a very keen uh, rock climber as a kid and became even more passionate as a young adult and uh, was very fortunate. A lot of nice things came my way, some amazing mentors. And I ended up getting a little bit lucky with the weather and conditions and great partners and getting up a few peaks. And, you know, when you climb, I, you know, it's always the lure of the Himalaya. And I was very fortunate to be able to go on some sponsored expeditions to climb in the Himalaya. And by the time I matriculated medical school, Rizal, I already knew I wanted to do something in global medicine. I did a master's degree, as you mentioned, in philosophy at Oxford, really looking at the moral imperative behind healthcare and healthcare delivery and looked specifically the haves versus the have-nots of the world. So when I started Harvard Medical School, I knew I wanted to do something in global medicine. And I wasn't really sure of what, and I was kind of searching for it. And I had the, fortunately the opportunity to work as a general doctor in one of the hospitals in, in foothills of the Himalaya in Nepal. And I really was looking at public health as a way to make substantive changes in the equity of global health. And the hospital I was working in, we had you know, a good dozen patients who were totally blind. And in those days in Nepal, it was just accepted that you get old, your hair turns white, your eye turns white, and then you die. And it's a big burden when you're in a subsistence agrarian economy to have a blind person in the family is a burden. And people are depressed, they become shriveled. It often takes a person out of the workforce or a child out of school to care for the blind person. And then a Dutch team came in uh, and they did cataract surgery. They did a cataract intervention with lens implants. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. People just blossomed back to life. And the joy of people look 10 years younger. 
And I went, wow. And I realized that this was a place you could really make an enormous impact on many, many levels. And in addition, that uh, even though the statistics say there's a huge number of people in our world who are needlessly blind, when someone gets cataract surgery, they're no longer statistic. They're 100% cured. And it was just such a miracle. I got so excited. I went back to Kathmandu and found that at that time, there was no one doing cataract surgery with lens implants in the country of Nepal. I thought, wow, this is a place I could make a difference. And I came back and started my residency in ophthalmology with focus on developing eye care systems in Nepal. And what I didn't know is that my partner, elder brother, and the real genius behind anything that I've been able to accomplish, uh, Sandik Ruit, was in his final year of uh, amazing amount of training in Australia. He's an amazing man, Sandik. He grew up in a small little hill village, three days walk from the nearest road in far Eastern Nepal, no electricity, no running water, no school. And often, you know, working a lot of these poor areas wonder what would have become of me had I been born in that sort of circumstance. But he came through that to get a scholarship to uh, one of the best medical schools in India. He then went to the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in Delhi to train as an ophthalmologist. He then uh, was noticed actually by the same Dutch ophthalmologist who I saw, Jan Koch, and went to the Netherlands to retrain as a state-of-the-art microsurgeon, met Fred Hollows, who became his mentor, and he then did a two-year fellowship in Australia with Fred Hollows, and he was finishing his final weeks in Australia when I was looking in Kathmandu, saying there's no one doing modern eye surgery, and so when I was starting my residency, he was already starting our program in Kathmandu. You know, as you mentioned, Dr. Ruit is someone you look up to as like a, an elder brother. And I'm curious to know, you know, how did this international mentorship begin? And what are some pearls you think young ophthalmologists could really learn from your ability to seek a mentorship from someone like Dr. Ruit? Well, you know, it just sort of came about it. I came... You know, I did my fellowship actually in Australia, and I, Fred, unfortunately, Professor Hollows died of uh, renal cancer just before I went to Australia. But he was one of the very few high-level Western academic ophthalmologists in the 1980s who really preached that we need to train local people. You need to empower local systems rather than the Western missionary model of the great Western doctor coming in, doing a few hundred cataracts and leaving. And I, another one of my mentors and still one of my closest advisors uh, is Hugh Taylor, who's the world's top authority really on in trachoma, also onchocerciasis and the most infectious blindness. And he was the chairman of my department in Melbourne when I did my fellowship and a protege of Fred's. And he sent me over to work with Dr. Rui and I just saw what he was doing and his whole system. It's not just the way he, and a lot of the best minds result in Western medicine are looking at how can we make something 1% better, even if it's 100% more expensive. And Sandik Rui was one of the few great minds who was looking at the question, how can I deliver the exact same quality at a cost that's affordable? And he was really developing a whole system of human resources and human resource utilization. And then how do we bring down the cost manufacturing lenses in Kathmandu? They 
started the first low-cost interocular lens factory. Fred Hollows raised the money for it with Australian and New Zealand technology. And that opened in Kathmandu just about the time that I first went there. And I saw what he was doing and it was just such a wow. And I looked around and most of my colleagues in you know, high-end American ophthalmology were saying, oh yes, what he's doing is inexpensive and fast, but it's not, you know, it's inferior. And I was like, wow, no, this is really delivering great care in an amazing way and creating a sustainability of something that's been called compassionate capitalism, where paying patients are subsidizing the free care and really a great utilization of human power people, everybody working up to their, their highest level of resource. So I just kind of got enamored with what he was doing. And it was a, a really nice partnership because it was, you know, I brought in the kind of Western academic side and helped publish papers showing what we were doing, as well as as we began to develop and start training programs, helping arrange uh, Western fellowships for some of our best and most talented young ophthalmologists. And then once we had the full component of subspecialists, then we started a full residency program in Kathmandu, and then uh, now full subspecialty fellowship. That's incredible. And so you've come a long way since the times that you were in fellowship. And of course, now uh, Nepal was the first country in Southeast Asia to achieve the status of trachoma elimination and remarkable success in reducing blindness. What do you think helped combat blindness in remote regions in Nepal, especially with the number of ophthalmologists that began in that country versus now? It's really multifactorial. It was one of the things was a great partnership and teamwork. And the, the doctors in Nepal really working together, creating a system where everyone thrives with higher volume surgery, both you know, the doctors, the nurses, the technicians, the people who sweep the floors. Uh, I think there's also you know, really a, a caring and a, a passion for other people. It's sort of inherent a little bit in the culture and really starting the training programs and everything kind of spiraled upwards. One, one of the nice things was that you know, in Nepal, you know, also in India, the best students want to go into medicine. And Sadek Rui became kind of a, a well-known kind of national hero. And we created a financial remuneration so that ophthalmologists in Nepal are on the higher end of uh, pay for doctors. And ophthalmology became the kind of number one most attractive field. So we had the absolute best students going into medicine and within there, the best of the best of the medical students were competing for the spots in ophthalmology. And we really created, a, actually I use we grandly, you know, Dr. Rui, but the whole team and, you know, the Nepali uh, partners we've been fortunate to have really created a way of delivering care and a way of developing training that's really focused on quality. And we really focused on quality really before quantity, and that really led to the, the quantity. And so on the topic of green ophthalmology, you mentioned that there were local manufacturing of IOLs. And I was kind of curious, um, how has the Himalayan cataract project addressed low-cost methods to eliminate waste? When I came to work with Dr. Rui in 1994, there was this great enthusiasm that the low-cost lens factory was really going to be a panacea, that it would 
provide all of the funding necessary to eliminate global blindness that we would be able to provide very low cost and completely free for the destitute lenses for the poor of Nepal, but be able to sell the lenses we started manufacturing in a little over $4 a lens, be able to sell them for $25 in Singapore, uh, Korea, Hong Kong, the Philippines, and that that would create this huge profit bridge that would fund all of the development of care. Uh, unfortunately, we never got the manufacturing up to the level that we needed to outpace the advances in delivering free care. So we had an ever-growing number of destitute people who needed the low-cost or free lenses. And we never really developed the distribution and marketing system. We didn't have the attention to detail of the, running the, the business of the lens factory as a profit. Uh, we thought it would just kind of happen. And in, within two years, a couple of very good low-cost lens manufacturers opened in India, and the price became a little bit more uh, competitive. And right now, all of the costs, I mean, the, one of my favorite systems is the Aravind Eye Hospital System down in uh, Tamil Nadu, and they have Oralab, which manufactures, you know, they sell a, a complete kit if you buy it at a a uh, rate of a thousand uh, cases, it's $11 for all your disposables, including your, you know, uh, peribulbar block, your uh, needle for the block, your uh, crescent blade, your side port blade, your keratome blade, uh, cystitome needle to do a capsulorexis, your viscoelastic, tripan blue to stain the capsule, uh, the lens implant, post-operative moxifloxacin, post-operative subconjunctival steroid and antibiotic, and all the antibiotic and steroid the patient needs for their post-operative period, all for $11. And so it's really brought the cost down where the material cost per surgery now is around $25. And in terms of the, the green impact, a lot of these advances have also, you know, I, we can't really take credit for it because it's been a sharing thing with quite a few other great programs, particularly in India. But I've been working to get reusable tubing, reusable almost everything. And there was a uh, wonderful article that was just published by one of my close friends and colleagues, David Chang, showing the difference in, uh, in garbage between Aravind and the National Health Service in uh, Britain and in the United States. And what a crazy amount of garbage we produce. And one of the things actually I'm working on at Stanford is figuring out how we can be a little bit more sensible and reuse uh, more things. Yes, indeed. And I think I would be very interested in following you up on, on that project, as this is a constant thing that we talk about in the OR. The Himalayan Cataract Project has expanded much farther than Nepal. What are some core principles you think have helped in transferring skills across continents and cultures? Well, the core principle really is quality. And, you know, unfortunately, we called it initially we sort of transitioned towards cureblindness.org which is our website, www.cureblindness.org, because we really are an overall eye care development program working at trying to eliminate blindness. Yeah, we called it the Himalayan Cataract Project because when we started and incorporated in 1995, 
there was an estimated backlog of 250,000 people blind with cataracts in Nepal, and Nepali surgeons were only doing 15,000 cataracts a year. No one was doing cataract surgery with lens implants in Bhutan. No one in the West Bengal area of mountainous India. No one in Sikkim, no one in Darjeeling, and then no one uh, in Tibet. So we thought it'd be a kind of a lifetime before we get a handle on the cataract problem. But in order to really treat the cataracts, you also have to treat the overall eye disease. You need to give quality care to everyone. So you really need to have all of the subspecialties covered and you need to really develop eye care. And really the core principle has really been quality and trying to bring you know, the exact same quality that we enjoy here in America to the poorest of the poor in the world. And we, we've been quite successful in, in bridging easily into, into Bhutan. Uh, India, the quality is really high, but there are huge issues. And then as the quality has become so good, I, I was in you know, surgery uh, in Stanford today. And, and you know, my average cataract patient in, in Stanford, as you all know, is you know, someone who's having trouble driving at night. And then someone has 20, 30 vision in their left eye and 20, 50 vision with glare in the right eye, and they want their cataract fixed. Well, in India, there's, you know, if you, if you look at the number of people in our world who are blind from cataracts, it's about 18 million. Those are people who can't do the tasks of daily living, can't see motion in front of their face. But if you start operating at 2200, what we call legally blind here in America, then all of a sudden we're looking at 60 million people who would benefit from cataract surgery. And if you start operating at the level, you know, we routinely operate on in America where you're having trouble passing a driver's test, it's eight times that number. And if the quality has become really great, particularly in India, there are so many people who want to keep working and keep their employment who are willing to pay $500 to have a cataract surgery that the poorest of the poor are getting a little bit left behind. But I think the, the one core principle really has been quality and treating every single person as the most important person on the planet when you're treating. Absolutely. And uh, I believe there was a mention in Second Sons of having uh, Norwell Christie mentioned something of the of the sorts where he was mentioning, you know, treat each other like family around the world. I can interject, just most of your people aren't going to know who Norval Christie was. And he was an amazing man. He, he was a Christian missionary doctor who worked in Texilla, Pakistan. And he was a phenomenal surgeon, a phenomenal person who worked absolutely tirelessly and probably did more cataract surgery than anyone who ever lived and probably ever will live. Uh, but the one thing that uh, was sad about Norval Christie was he didn't teach or empower other people. And when he, he left, unfortunately, the program in Texilla sort of faded. And for many, many years, he was really held, certainly by the American Academy of Ophthalmology as the pinnacle of what eye care development should be. Someone like Norval Christie, who donates his entire life and his entire career for the poor. And he had a wonderful life. He was one of the most wonderful people to spend time with and sort of a joyous man with twinkly eyes. But his whole life was working and unfortunately not teaching or training. And so the one thing we've 
sort of moved a little away from, from the Norval Christie model is really training and in, in development. You know, I'm really glad that you mentioned this because one of my questions was, you know, how do you attract and retain rising talents in global ophthalmology? Because each of us has limited time. And I think that was all too recent for us as a reminder. So, uh, you know, how do you retain individuals who will take our places when we pass away or maybe our skills are not as high quality as it once was? Well, well, it's tough, you know, because, you know, I have an endowed chair at Stanford that pays my salary while I'm working in Africa. So it's easy for me to say, oh, you know, we need to work, you know, 12 hours a day here and, you know, treat all the patients. But when you have a family to feed or you're trying to send your children to school and your salary is a little bit low in an African country, it's difficult to, you know, there's, um, you know, if you, there's the sort of financial realities of the world that people need to to live well in their country and want to have the best life they can for their family. So I, you know, actually looking at that issue right now, I just returned a week ago from South Sudan, which is maybe the most desperate country in the world when it comes to eye care. They only have three ophthalmologists. There's no one in the in the training <laughs> mill right now. And there are four trained ophthalmologists who are, two are in Kenya, one's in Zimbabwe, and one is working for an NGO on an HIV project. And it's very hard for me to say, well, you should need to go back to South Sudan where the resources are more limited and the salary is way lower when they're having children and a life in Kenya. So that one of the big, big issues is that you know, financial incentives to have people continue working locally in their country. Uh, it's one of the things we're sort of struggling a little bit with some of the health ministries. And one of the big issues, particularly in Africa, staying a little bit off of your question, is that, um, you know, right now, as I mentioned in Nepal, we were able to create this wonderful system of high volume surgery rewarding everyone so that the ophthalmology has become extremely attractive. In India, ophthalmology is extremely lucrative. There are so many patients willing to pay for their surgery. And again, it's at the very most competitive of residencies to get into in India, and the quality continues to be great. In several African countries where I'm working, ophthalmology is not seen as a great field to go into because the ophthalmologists are all on government salaries that are relatively low. And if you're a physician, you'd be better working for an NGO. And the NGO money has gone into maternal health, fetal health, and so OBGYN and pediatrics, infectious disease are more attractive fields. And so the top graduates aren't going into ophthalmology. And so one of the the big challenges is really attracting the best people into the field and figuring out a way that particularly operating on the poor, we can bring um, a better financial security to doctors in some of these poorer countries. 
Very interesting. And Dr. David Myers, um, I just spoke with him uh, last year about Haiti, and he had the same conversation about trying to make ophthalmology the most competitive specialty to attract the greatest talents in the country. Um, And I absolutely agree. I do believe that this makes a specialty filled with passionate individuals who are going to make or think outside of the box for the country's benefit. So with one of my last questions, I wanted to ask you, you know, you started global ophthalmology at time when few would participate in it. And it was at a very young age. What aspects of your life motivated you to pursue and create this type of space for young ophthalmologists? Because due to you and so many other individuals around your time and after your time have allowed for global ophthalmology fellowships to even be provided to trainees after fellowship. For me, I've never had big material goals. (laughs) My friends and peers were, you know, rock climbing bumps, you know, (laughs) insisting on on pretty much a very, very low uh, material uh, income. And I was fortunate to be able to kind of keep my sort of rock climbing bum roots as I was going through you know, medical school and really thinking, living in some of the poor countries, just you know, how fortunate we are in America. And I thought I was living pretty darn well on a resident salary. And, uh, and so I think that one, you know, and it, throughout my career, I've always sort of negotiated time versus money. I've always negotiated less money for more time to be able to work internationally. And it, it's just given me so much in terms of my own personal life and rewards. And I, uh, I came up with the idea of the first Global Ophthalmology Fellowship at Utah. I started the Global Ophthalmology Fellowship program in, uh, in 2008 at the University of Utah. And now I think there are about 10 Global Ophthalmology Fellowships in America. There's one in Canada, and a couple in Europe. But I think it's really the um, the idea that you can make this a major portion of your career and the rewards of making it a big part of your career. And, you know, at Stanford, we're working to support several other faculty members who are now really trying to focus on global eye care development. And I think there's an awareness that the world is a smaller place. And we are all very, very connected. And, and, and they're, they're, to me, I mean, they're just, still such a joy. I mean, I still, you know, nearly 30 years into it, I still get such an overwhelming joy from uh, one, seeing a person who's totally blind have their sight restored. And then also I get such joy out of my trainees and seeing, you know, both my American, you know, the residents at Stanford and fellows at Stanford as their skills improve, but even more so when I see our trainees in Africa or trainees in Asia and their skills are improving. I'm really glad to hear that. And I think what I'm really excited about is the fact that you began in Moran and now you're at Stanford and you're already, you know, starting up roots for two amazing programs, one of which is incredibly successful and the other you're already building and uh, bringing to its highest, you know, ability to provide global ophthalmology services. In the book of Second Sons by David Oliver Rellin, um, discussing the 
life happenings of you and Dr. Sendikruit, there was this end sentence where you said, we still have a long way to go before we rest. Don't ration the passion. And I really love that sentence because it goes with the spirit of global ophthalmology about sharing our skills because um, as everybody that I look up to have said, knowledge is power. And the more we share it, the more it amplifies to benefit other individuals. And so my last question to you is, what do you see as the future of global ophthalmology and what do you hope to accomplish in the coming years? The future, I hope, is a wider number of really great ophthalmologists who really embrace improving eye care around the world, particularly in the poorer places on their planet as a major portion of their career. And what do I hope to, you know, I, I would love to see Africa begin to go the same way as, um, as Nepal and India and Bhutan in reversing their blindness. I'd like to see, you know, we're trying to get some really good young ophthalmologists in Cambodia and Laos and uh, in Myanmar, uh, in Indonesia. And all those countries have huge backlogs of blindness that are unnecessary. Now, it's a crazy thing that in our world, the cost to completely restore sight to every person who's needlessly blind from cataracts or unable to thrive or work because they don't have spectacles is about $14 billion. If you look how much our, our government spends right now, this is the government of the United States, on uh, military. And we were spending $14 billion a month between Afghanistan and Iraq. If we would have spent a fraction of that in Afghanistan and restored sight, Af Afghanistan has a huge blindness problem. We could have created so much more uh, peace and love in uh, Afghanistan. Or if you know one person like a Mackenzie Scott or a Jeff Bezos uh, um, or a Sergey Brin decided $14 billion, they could eliminate all the needless blindness on our planet. And that, that, that's, uh, that's something that one I'd love to see is how we can reach one of these people who have this you know, uh, crazy amount of wealth to be able to do that. But then I really would like to see the, the quality picking up in Africa where Africa begins to really have that same momentum to overcome blindness that we have in, uh, in Asia. And then some of the several pockets, I haven't been working as much in South America and Central America, but there's some great programs working in those places. And uh, you know, I, I think we, we can turn the tide against needless blindness and can be something that we, we can't overcome. Absolutely. And I hope that day comes really, really soon. And of course, with people like you, Dr. Chika Matenge, and so many individuals who have had the opportunity to interview will be the individuals to bring that change uh, already as we're seeing it unfold. So with that, thank you, Dr. Tabin, for being on the show. And I hope that our listeners will be very pleased with this episode. 
Well, thank you very much for having me, Rizzo. I hope one of them knows Mackenzie Scott or one of them <laughs> knows, uh, knows Elon Musk. And please uh, give them my, uh, our website's www.cureblindness.org. My email is tabman at stanford.edu. And, and uh, uh, please pass on my, my personal phone number to Mackenzie Scott. And let's get her done. <laughs> All right, absolutely. Thank you for listening to Open Globe Talk. If you enjoyed this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Open Globe Talk. You can access audio recordings on our website, openglobetk.com, where we make our sessions available on Spotify, Apple, and Google. Our release dates are each Friday evening of the week we interview our guest speakers. We are incredibly appreciative of our listeners and hope you ride along to meet more inspirational figures in global ophthalmology. Thanks and take care.